Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities with Public Schools Unite Us initiative and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. This week, Friday, October 6th, is the fifth anniversary of a devastating limo crash in Schoharie that killed 20 people. The Legislative Gazette's Ian Pickus takes a look back. A weekend birthday outing quickly turned to tragedy on that 2018 day when the stretch limousine barreled down a hill in Schoharie at over 100 miles per hour as its front brakes failed, killing all 17 passengers, the driver, and two bystanders. The vehicle owned by Prestige Limousine had been ordered off the road multiple times due to safety violations. The crash still haunts people like Mary Ashton, who lost her 34-year-old son, Michael Ukai, a former Marine. She spoke this spring about her son, who'd been celebrating his 34th birthday at the time. My son's life meant something. And as I found out a week and a half ago, he was a hero in Iraq. And now, I can't even say congratulations, Michael. I'm really proud of you. The company's operator, Nalman Hussein, was sentenced to 5 to 15 years in prison for 20 counts of manslaughter this May. Grieving parent Kevin Cushing was pleased by the sentencing, but said it doesn't bring back his son. I'm happy for them. I'm happy for us. Uh, you know, it's, it's still not closure. We, we will never get closure from an accident like this. Patrick Cushing was one of many young adults from the capital region in the crash, some of whom had just recently been married. Hussein and his company, which is owned by his father, Shahed, are also targets of civil suits by families of the victims, who've also sued Mavis Discount Tire for falsifying brake work on the vehicle and providing an unauthorized inspection sticker, and New York State for letting the vehicle stay on the road. Times Union reporter Larry Rulison has reported on the aftermath of the crash ever since October 2018. It could have all been prevented if the state had just yanked that limo, taking the plates right then and there when they found out that uh, Nalman Hussein had not registered the, the limo and was um, basically running an illegal limo operation. It could have been avoided and um, so many young lives lost. The tragedy inspired a wave of limo safety reforms, with a number of New York state regulations being passed in January 2020 and federal safety measures being included in 2021's infrastructure bill. Congressman Paul Tonko of New York's 20th district hails from Amsterdam, like many of the victims, and credited the families for pressing for the reforms. They gathered support, prepared for hearings, called and wrote to members of Congress and staff members. They share their stories painfully time and time again and refuse to allow inaction. Jill Richardson Perez lost her son, Matthew Coons. After the federal reforms were passed in November 2021, she vowed to look out for children who lost their parents on the day of the crash. There are children that have been left behind from this tragedy that some of us have also made a promise. We've promised to look out for their futures. 
Cushing is among the family members who want to see the Grieving Families Act, which would entitle people like those affected by the Schoharie tragedy to receive monetary damages, become law. The bill was vetoed in February by Governor Kathy Hochul before being passed again at the end of the legislative session. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Ian Pickus. Supporters of a bill that would move New York more quickly to clean energy sources say the torrential rain that recently flooded parts of New York City and the Hudson Valley is one more example of climate change causing more severe weather. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt with more. The measure, known as the New York Heat Act, would end over $200 million in subsidies for the state's oil and gas industry by eliminating the so-called 100-foot rule. That requires utilities to install new gas lines for free to hook up customers who live within 100 feet of an existing gas main. But existing customers, not the utility, shoulder the cost. Critics argue the rule unfairly advantages choosing gas, which often comes from fracked sources, over cleaner forms of energy. The bill would also cap energy bills at 6% of income for low- and middle-income families, saving those households an estimated $75 per month. Advocates, including Sonal Jessup with the group We Act for Environmental Justice, say Friday's record rainfall, which inundated parts of New York City, came after floods from Hurricane Ida two years ago, damaging rainfall in the Hudson Valley over the summer and smoky air from Canadian wildfires. She says the incidents can't just be accepted as the new normal. These events are only getting more frequent and more severe. We have to get off fossil fuels now. The New York Heat Act will help us get there by starting to get New York off the polluting, outdated frack gas pipeline system that supercharges storms like the one we just had. Justin Henning, a resident of the Gowanus section of Brooklyn, says when he picked up his young daughter from school on Friday, the bus they were riding home in encountered a pond of water in the road that was two and a half feet deep. After the water started seeping into the bus, he says he picked up his daughter and jumped up on the seat. My daughter was scared. She didn't know what was going on. And I mean, I was able to stay calm, but, you know, it was a, you know everyone's got their phones out to Instagram, all that stuff, you know, and it's just we can't feel like we're safe getting my daughter to and from school, you know, and I'm getting I'm getting to work as well. It's really tough to go through that. The bill passed the state Senate, but it stalled in the assembly. The oil and gas industry opposed the measure. Senate sponsor Liz Kruger, whose Manhattan district was affected by Friday's flooding, is among those asking Governor Hochul not to wait for the assembly to act, but to instead incorporate the provisions of the New York Heat Act into her next state budget. Friday's experience of crisis wasn't even a big storm. It's just what they're calling heavy rain in the new normal. Heavy rain can do that much damage because frankly, our infrastructure is not there to meet our needs. Kruger says costs for upgrading the city's sewer systems to withstand the more intense rainfall could be $100 billion. Senator Kruger and the advocates say the legislation would also help New York carry out the goals of its 2019 Climate Change Act. A spokesman for Governor Hochul did not comment directly on the request. Spokesman Avi Small said only that the governor looks forward to releasing the details of her executive budget next year, as is required by law. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt.
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. This week, I sat down with Nick Rangel, the executive director of the Legal Aid Society of Northeastern New York. I asked Nick Rangel about whether people who are poor get equal representation under the law. The vast majority of people facing legal issues do not have an attorney to help them, and that's um, you know even higher in the civil legal issue area. Our com- uh, our organization serves low income people, so it's free legal services for low income people. They are um, the most at risk of being evicted or facing foreclosure, um, but they also have sort of the fewest resources to um, exercise their rights and protect um, protect their their um, livelihoods. Their even to appeal decisions for you know disability, for example, or how to put together an application to apply for disability assistance. So we're working with people who are really the most marginalized, the most vulnerable, and the least uh, able to access legal services. And um, you know, there's this sort of philosophical movement around the civil Gideon that people who can't afford an attorney who are facing these. Um, you know, life-changing legal issues, divorces, custodies, evictions, right, um, should have access to attorneys. Unfortunately, you know, legal aid attorneys face similar challenges to public defenders. Our salaries are well below the median salaries for uh, people who are practitioners, who are licensed attorneys. And in Albany, it's more acute because we have so much competition for public service positions. We have government options and opportunities at every level of government sure. that really um, drive up the median um, salary ranges that are really hard for legal aids to compete with work entirely grant funded. So let me ask you something, because you mentioned below the poverty. What's that mean? What's that income level that would qualify you for free legal services? So our federal requirements require us to serve people at 125 percent federal poverty level. It's set uh, by the government under HUD regulations. For a single person, I think that's around $13,000. For a family of four, it's in the you know, mid-20s, it's very low income. New York State has additional funding that allows us to serve people up to the 200,000, I'm sorry, 200% uh, federal poverty level. So that's higher, but it's still well below middle income, right? It's it's still poor. It's still very low income people. So Um, that's the level. But then the question is, and I think this is part of why not only do I want to talk to you, but want to get your perspective on this, is awareness. Now, so many of these folks who are poor, who are under this poverty line that would be able to get free legal services, I'm guessing many don't even know you exist. We serve 16 counties in upstate New York. We have positions for about 110 staff. But what that means is much of our service area is rural. It's remote. Um, We don't have, we have six offices, so clearly not offices in every county that we serve. Many of our attorneys are traveling two or or three hours to go to court for the one client in that county. So, you know, there's a lot of unmet need here, um, and closing the justice gap is a significant goal and focus in, in New York State, but it will take a lot of resources to really achieve that. 
What about the rest of the state? So there's the Legal Aid Society of Northeastern New York. Are there other legal aid societies across the state that also are there for the rest of the New Yorkers listening? Yep. So under the Legal Services Corporation for LSC-funded legal aid societies like mine, um, we all have a service area. So we kind of carve up the state in those service areas. Okay. And then in addition, there are other legal service providers. So here in the Capital Region, for example, we have LASNI, the organization I'm at, but we also have Empire Justice Center. We have the legal project, we have prisoner legal services. So there is a, a bit of a patchwork of, of legal help that people can access in Albany. In more rural areas, there's much less access and much less opportunity. So it's more challenging for somebody. So there is a, an interest at, at the state level in the legislature and in the governor's office to expand access to um, legal representation, especially focused on eviction prevention. There's um, There are a number of legislative policies that are being considered. There's right to counsel. There's a uh, good cause. There's, you know, there are um, efforts to try to ensure that people have access to legal assistance when they're facing evictions. And um, our program uh, offers several other types of legal support, but the eviction need is so acute that that does tend to be um, the focus of most conversations right now. Well, let's go there. Let's not avoid it. Let's talk about this. I remember Jimmy McMillan, I believe he ran for governor at one point, and he said the rent is too damn high. And <laughs> You know, it's a diverse state. You know, depending on where you are, you're in New York City, you're going to pay a heck of a lot more for rent than you do in Albany. We know that. We know that discrepancy. But then again, the salaries tend to be a little higher. However, if you're poor, you're poor. And no matter where you are, the rent could be so high, it could force you onto the street. So how do we ensure? In other words, I guess what we're talking about philosophically is housing a basic right for a human being. I mean, I, I have to say it is, right? I mean, you need to have a place to live in order to achieve any sense of success in your lifetime, right? Stability is critical to childhood outcomes. It's critical to success in education. It's critical to a number of things. And what I would note is right now we're in this kind of precarious situation because there were rent freezes during the pandemic. Once the pandemic um, protections expired, rents jumped significantly, sort of catching up on kind of three years of pause. Then we're also, because the protections preventing evictions expired, uh, the rate of eviction proceedings started to spike. They're not they're getting close to pre-pandemic levels, but they're they're coming up very quickly. At the same time, um, salaries have not been keeping up with the cost of living or the cost of rent. And um, we were there's a, 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 a article out in the New York Times um, on research that uh, found that kids and households with kids under five are the highest risk of eviction uh, in rental housing and that um, a household that has kids under five are just the most likely to be evicted. And that rate is even higher in households of color and especially um, for uh, kids who have um, parents who are African-American or, or moms who are black actually is what they focus on. So we have these this kind of confluence of, you know, increases in rents, 
sort of stagnant salaries in a lot of ways, and then households, especially parents, struggling to find childcare, struggling to hold down jobs that can make sure they can pay their rent. And then what our focus is really is on helping communities grow their housing stock so that there are, you know, it's a supply and demand. If there are more apartments available to rent, it will help keep the cost of those apartments down because there's more supply. The demand is not going up as quickly once you kind of hit kind of a sweet spot. And you do see it, a number of policies out of the state to encourage communities to allow more development. Of you course, supportive of, pardon me for interrupting, were you very supportive of the governor's proposal for housing that kind of failed in the legislature? I mean, they're still looking at this issue, but it was a pretty grand plan. It, it ran up against local zoning issues and local politicians and others say, no, 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 not, not, not here. You're not going to do that here. But do you see that issue eventually being dealt with by the legislature? Yeah, absolutely. I do think that zoning reform and smart growth are is is has to be part of the conversation for solving the uh, rent and eviction problem. There's a number of issues that sort of overlay. So if you are low income and you uh, have a housing voucher, that voucher can be used. At an apartment that has these sort of criteria, you know, how high the rent can be, blah, blah, blah. But if you have a kid who's under six, it also has to pass a lead inspection. And so if you are in a rural community or anywhere else and you... In 2023. In 2023. But but many of these uh, old housing stock can pass a lead inspection, right? So So... That's what I was saying. In other words, in 2023, we're still dealing with getting lead... Right. out of buildings. Right. And the rate of lead is higher in old stock, which is also where, you know, which is the most affordable housing stock. So if we aren't encouraging new development, if we aren't encouraging and helping property owners mitigate their lead, right, encapsulate their lead or whatever, the options for where a low-income household can live, especially if they have kids, is, is is very, very limited. So zoning reform is and has to be part of that discussion. Smart development, transit-oriented development, these policy uh, ideas are part of the solution to the very low vacancy rate, the difficulty in finding affordable housing and um, reducing the impact and um, vulnerability of low-income people facing evictions. That's Nick Rangel, Executive Director of the Legal Aid Society of Northeastern New York. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Last month, Joe Biden became the first sitting U.S. president to join a picket line outside a General Motors facility in Michigan. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas has reaction from union leaders in the Northeast to the recent strike. You guys, UAW, you saved the automobile industry back in 2008 and 2004. Made a lot of sacrifices, gave up a lot, and the companies were in trouble. Now they're doing incredibly well. And guess what? You should be doing incredibly well, too. Biden spoke through a bullhorn as he urged strikers to stick with it. 
Jeffrey Purcell is president of UAW Local 3039 in Rockland County, whose members joined the strike on September 22nd. President Biden coming in and standing with the working class people, I feel it's great for the economy. It's great for the UAW. Um, any any political matter that's going to come stand behind workers, the working class of America, and show support to the middle class workers um, is phenomenal. And, uh, you know, we'll accept any support we can against, you know, these corporations that are doing their best to try to divide us and try to not give us our fair, our fair share. United University Professions President Fred Cole agrees Biden's action was inspiring. It's really indicative of how much of a friend that uh, President Biden has been to workers and to unions, um, both in terms of, you know, legislation that has been passed, major legislation on infrastructure, the Inflation Reduction Act and the, the green transformation and the requirement that there be un- union workers. Uh, and, you know, he, he just uh, in his heart and soul understands the importance of unions in, in building a middle class in building uh, a stronger uh, American economy that is more equitable and more fair. Capital District Area Labor Federation Director Mark Emanation says he and his colleagues are all in solidarity with the United Auto Workers. The big three automakers have made so much money, and uh, there's I mean, terrible things. The tier system in the, the, the auto workers... Um, where there's uh, several different tiers, and the lowest-paid workers get $18 an hour, where the, a, a great uh, percentage of workers are temporary workers um, who, who you know, get no benefits and work part-time but work 12-hour days, and sometimes they've been temporary workers for over two years working 12-hour days, which isn't temporary at all. So um, we're all in on that. We're urging everybody from everywhere, all stripes, to do um, solidarity with them. Emanation sees Biden's walk on the picket line as a watershed moment. I think it's a big deal that a president of the United States, for the first time, as far as I can tell historically, um, that a, a, sitting, a sitting president, not somebody that you know is no longer president, but you know, a former president, but a sitting president walking a picket line with striking workers, I think it's a big deal. I think it'll help the strike. I think it'll help um, in solidarity with them, and I think it's I, I think it's very important. Purcell is asking all Americans to support striking workers. Some people might just look at what the union is asking for, and uh, just think that you know it's, it's a bit much, and think that you know there's not it's not reasonable. But I encourage everybody to research the facts. One thing that President Sean Fain is really good at is putting the facts out to people and explaining exactly why he's asking for what he's asking for and why we want the things that we want. So I encourage everybody to go online, do their research, look up the facts, and actually see the reason why we have the demands that we have and the reasons why we're actually out on strike right now. The big three automakers say they have been negotiating with the UAW, but a chief executive at General Motors contends union leaders have no real intent to get to an agreement. An official at Ford said Friday that the company and the UAW were very close to a deal. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. Political supporters and one-time foes gathered last week in Rensselaer, New York, as the train station was renamed after the late and prominent state Senate Majority Leader Joseph Bruno. The Legislative Gazette's Samantha Simmons was there and filed this report. To make this official, please turn your attention to the main entrance as we unveil the, the signage and the new name 
of our train station. Not far from the minor league baseball stadium in Troy that already bears Bruno's name, the Rensselaer Rail Station got an update Tuesday. Bruno served in the New York State Senate for more than three decades and wielded significant clout as majority leader from 1994 until his retirement in 2008 and was one of the principals in Albany's annual budget wars. Well, they're wrong. The speaker's wrong because we did a budget reform package, passed it again this year. Bruno, who died in 2020, is remembered for his focus on the upstate economy, including securing funding for major infrastructure projects like Albany International Airport and millions of dollars for rail. Speakers at the ceremony remembered Bruno as a doer. The Capital District Transportation Authority owns and operates the Amtrak station. CDTA CEO Karn Bazil says the station serves nearly a million people a year despite its humble beginnings. Senator Joseph Bruno dedicated his life to service and to ensuring that the capital region was competitive in every arena, business, education, recreation, and tourism. He understood the importance of our transportation infrastructure and the need for, peop for people to make easy connections, easy connections to economic opportunity. Bazil says as the region continues to develop, renaming the station ensures Bruno's legacy lives on. It encourages people to think about the transportation infrastructure in our community, right? How, how do we move? How do we get along? How do we um, get to economic opportunities? How do we get to work, shop, and play? And the senator, I think, kept that foremost in his, his mind and in his thinking. Former Democratic Governor David Patterson referred to Bruno as, quote, one of the five best friends, unquote, he's ever had. Patterson, a party leader in the Senate before his rapid ascent to lieutenant governor and then governor in 2008, says although he and Bruno were on opposite sides of the political aisle, they were able to put aside their differences and form a true friendship. They say that service to others is how um, uh, we mark our place on this planet. And uh, Joe Bruno certainly did not leave this planet without giving as much service to others as anyone that I ever met. Um, they say that uh, people uh, look at things as they are and ask why. Joe Bruno saw things that never were and asked why not. Bruno's longtime press secretary, Marsha White, now the president of the College of St. Rose in Albany, spoke on behalf of the family. Never in his public life did he fail to decide when it was time to decide. Always positioning himself on the front lines, whether it's serving in Korea or serving in the political arena. He walked, talked, and looked like a leader. Elsewhere in Rensselaer County, on the campus of Hudson Valley Community College, is Joseph L. Bruno Stadium, or the Joe. The stadium was built in 2002 thanks to millions in state funding steered by Bruno. Liza Bruno is one of Bruno's eight grandchildren. Bruno also has one great-grandchild. He affected so many people, and it was great to hear from so many of them today, and it's a lasting legacy that we'll remember forever. Such a renaming didn't always seem likely. In 2009, Bruno began the legal battle that dominated the last years of his life. He was indicted on a number of corruption charges. He was acquitted on some and convicted of two counts of mail and wire fraud. The convictions were later overturned but retried. The Republican was ultimately cleared in 2014. He died in 2020 at the age of 91 following a battle with cancer. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Samantha Simmons. Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from 
United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org.